Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Nature Pastcast, each month raiding nature's archive and looking at key moments in science. The First World War is drawing to an end, and a team of astronomers hatch a plan to chase a solar eclipse across the globe in order to test Einstein's bold new theory. Nature, November the 13th, 1919. Results of the solar eclipse of May 29th and the relativity theory. The May 1919 eclipse was one of the first opportunities anyone would have to really check and see whether Einstein's ideas were correct. Just on the heels uh, of of what had been this horrible, horrible conflict between Britain and Germany, among others, here was a, a British team led by a Quaker pacifist, internationalist, mathematical physicist, eager to restore what he called the Brotherhood of Science. Einstein becomes famous essentially overnight because the expedition was so dramatic and so exciting and such an extraordinary way to think about science being done. My name is David Kaiser. I'm an historian of science and a physicist, and I teach at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 1918, from a speech by Arthur Eddington to the Royal Institution, Gravitation and the Principle of Relativity. Arthur Eddington was a remarkably gifted um, uh, astronomer and mathematical physicist in a way that that was not always uh, the case. People by that point had often specialized in one or the other, and Eddington was remarkably talented across the board. Uh, And he was um, very deeply interested, earlier than almost anyone certainly in Britain, deeply interested in in this new, not well-understood work by Albert Einstein, on what came to be known as general relativity. So a generalization 10 years on from Einstein's special relativity. So Eddington had a, had a special and unusual interest in, in Einstein's work. It was also incredibly difficult for Eddington to learn about it in, in any direct way because it was all happening in the midst of World War I. His family and personal background was unusual too in that he was a Quaker. I'm Matthew Stanley. I'm an associate professor at New York University. So after mass conscription was introduced in Britain, um, Eddington, like most men his age, were expected to register for conscription and fight for the war if selected. But as a pacifist, he refused. Um, He engaged what was called the conscientious objector clause in the conscription act. And this was legally allowed, but extremely despised. Um, Conscientious objectors were often forced to wear special armbands, 
sentence. Uh, they could be sent to prison. And in the end, Eddington was only saved by the fact that he was good friends with Frank Dyson, who was the astronomer royal at the time. It's unclear precisely what happened, but it seems likely that Dyson intervened with high levels of government to get Eddington an exemption from conscription on the condition that he conduct this experiment, that is, this observation of Einstein's prediction. Gravitation and the Principle of Relativity So, in brief, Einstein's work on general relativity was predicated on the notion that there's no force of gravity. Einstein said maybe there's no force of gravity at all, and that what appears as the phenomenon of gravity, uh, an apple falling on uh, Newton's head and near his orchard, or the moon falling in its orbit around the Earth, or all these gravitational effects that have been so well studied, what if they arose because space and time are as wobbly as a trampoline? That space-time is plastic, it's malleable, it can be warped or distended, or it could be pushed out of into a funny shape. Uh, and then everything else has to move as straight as it can on a, on a warped surface. That's a remarkable shift in what we think gravity is all about. Uh, and then Einstein, again, uh, uh, in the years he was thinking about this, years during World War I, so cut off from many colleagues, tried to, to think of ways to test that idea. So if this preposterous-sounding notion is true, that there's no force of gravity, Newton was wrong, space is like a wobbly trampoline, then what effects would, would show that? How would we see this, see the curvature of space or space and time? And one way he, he realized was to think about the, the effect that this warped, this bent surface would have on objects moving through it, objects like light beams. from a speech by Arthur Eddington to the Royal Institution. If a beam of light passes an object which exerts a gravitational attraction, it must drop a little towards the object. Light passing near the edge of a massive body like the sun would be slightly deflected from the straight line that we expect light to travel in. And instead, it would be curved by the sun's gravity in exactly the same way that the trajectory of a baseball is bent by gravity as you throw it. Just as the trajectory of a rifle bullet is curved. Well, ordinarily, we wouldn't see the light from very dim or distant stars when the sun's shining in our eyes. The sun's so much brighter. So Einstein realized if you could conduct, if you can photograph the field of stars during a total eclipse when the moon has conveniently moved between us and the sun, blocking the glare of the sun, and in that sudden darkness of the eclipse, seeing the, the little uh, pinpricks of light from the surrounding stars that otherwise would be, we would be blind to. During a total eclipse, Stars have occasionally been photographed fairly close to the sun, and with care it should be possible to observe this effect. There is a magnificent opportunity next year when a total eclipse of the sun takes place right in the midst of a field of bright stars. This is the best opportunity for some generations, and it is hoped to send out expeditions. So Einstein was trapped in Germany and couldn't conduct any of these experiments himself. There was one German astronomer named uh, Erwin Freundlich who did try to observe this in August 1914, but had the misfortune of trying to observe an eclipse that was in Russian territory just as World War I broke out. 
So he and his colleagues were actually arrested as enemy aliens and his equipment uh, was impounded and took some years for him to get home. So by the end of World War I, Einstein's theory had sat for some years without any kind of clear empirical evidence one way or the other. February 1919. Advantage is being taken of the cessation of hostilities to arrange for the occupation of two stations in the eclipse of next May. One of the problems that the observers had at the time was that the path of the eclipse was across the southern half of the planet, not very convenient for European astronomers. So if Eddington was going to take a crew to observe this, they were going to have to travel to places that were not easy to get to, especially so soon after the end of the war. In the end, they decided to send two teams. The selected Brazilian station is Sobral, about 80 miles inland, connected by railway with Camosim, which is reached by steamer from Para. Professor Eddington and Mr. Cottingham will occupy the Portuguese island of Principe, 110 miles distant from the African coast, which is reached by fortnightly steamer from Lisbon. So Eddington went to the observing location off the coast of West Africa, which was a Portuguese colony, a sugar plantation. One of the things he discovered after he managed to get there uh, was that the island had terrible weather. So the odds of them getting a good observation were very low. And it's sort of, it's hard to imagine in this day of uh, satellite observations and ubiquitous weather forecasts that he couldn't know what the weather was going to be like in this island before he actually got there, but he didn't. So uh, once they got there, they had to not only find a place where they could set up out of the rain, uh, but it was very near the edge of the forest. So one of the problems they had was that monkeys living in the forest kept coming down and sabotaging their equipment structures. So as they would set something up, the monkeys would run out of the forest, grab pieces of equipment, and chase down the monkeys. And eventually they had to get laborers from the plantation to come help them hunt down the local wildlife to keep from interfering. Brazil actually had it a little easier because they were closer to what we might think of as a, a developed infrastructure. So the team in Brazil had access not only to Brazil's first car, but also to a local ice-making machine, which they were able to use to help stabilize the temperature for the development of the photographs. In Brazil, there were two telescopes at work. One of them, the so-called astrographic, was the primary and more sophisticated telescope. But its mirror deformed slightly underneath the heat of the sun and distorted the results. Uh, it was a hard, hard observation under difficult circumstances. Not a perfect experiment, no experiment ever is, but it was also certainly not um, a, a, a very bad one. November the 13th, 1919. Results of the solar eclipse of May 29th and the relativity theory. 
The results obtained at the total solar eclipse of May 29th last were reported at the joint meeting of the Royal Astronomical Societies. The results from Africa had a handful of the stars that were needed and gave good results that were largely in agreement with Einstein's prediction. The results from Brazil, however, were somewhat different. The smaller backup telescope captured a number of excellent stars that showed the deflection very close to Einstein's prediction. Unfortunately, the larger distorted telescope also captured a number of stars, but because of the distortion, gave a number about half what Einstein had predicted. The explanation appears to be a change of figure of the celostat mirror due to the heat of the sun. Nonetheless, when they boiled down all their numbers, it looked like Einstein's predictions were right and that、uh, gravity was not as Newton had said. Uh, that Einstein's theory of general relativity, with its very strange-sounding warping of space and time, its very, very abstract and difficult mathematics, maybe that had captured a truth of the world. It's really pretty remarkable how quickly assent gathered behind the idea that Einstein's prediction、uh, had been verified, and partially that's because the actual numerical prediction, that is 1.75 arc seconds, was not really the important feature. The important feature was simply the claim that light was deflected by gravity at all. For most people, they felt that any significant deviation from the straight-line propagation of light was evidence for the kind of deflection that Einstein was talking about. There's a controversy that, that I think has been settled, but it still has it flares up from time to time. In the extreme form, people have claimed: Did Eddington cook the books in favor of Einstein? Was there too much massaging of data? And I think,、uh, for, for my money, I think that had been overblown, and the results have been tested many, many times since.、Uh, Einstein's predictions have held held up now to to extraordinary accuracy,、uh, and so Eddington's、uh, early and quite quite、um, astonishing attempts have have stood the test of time. Sir J. J. Thompson, who presided, spoke of the verification as epoch-making. Einstein's theory. In having these clear predictions that can be at least conceptually be easily tested, in fact, becomes kind of a model for how people think about theoretical science in the 20th century. Particularly, the very influential philosopher of science Karl Popper points to the 1919 expedition as the classic example of how science is supposed to work. J. J. Thompson, who presided, spoke of the verification as epoch-making, but he regretted the very complicated form in which Einstein expressed his theory, and hoped it might be possible to put it into a form in which it would be more generally comprehensible and useful. This is、um, really、uh, something that people say a lot at the time when people are first encountering relativity and Einstein's ideas. There's this、uh, common. There's this common idea that many people voice that Einstein, as a German, was being overly thorough and making things more complicated than they needed to be. But Eddington was a really gifted popularizer of science, so he was out there、uh, on the street and in the newspapers and in the magazines, writing essays and giving lectures about what relativity meant and why people should care about it. The the drama of going. 
to these far-flung corners of the world to test this esoteric prediction, literally as the armistice is being signed in Europe, uh, caught people's imagination. And to a large part, we can think of Einstein's fame as coming out of exactly that kind of public interest. been listening to the Nature Pastcast. This month's contributors were historians Matthew Stanley of Columbia University in New York and David Kaiser at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. The music was Sanson's Organ Symphony No. 3. Sanson was a keen amateur astronomer. He owned a telescope and scheduled concerts to coincide with solar eclipses. This is the last Pastcast in this 12-part series. Elsewhere in the series, tales of exoplanets, blockbuster drugs, wild beasts and the first pages of nature, to name but a few. Find all the episodes at nature.com slash nature slash podcast slash pastcast. The series producers were Charlotte Stoddart and me, Kerry Smith. I hope you enjoy the collection. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.